0: it did really influence and galvanize and inspire black people across the country who had been told for so long that they didn't have any place in politics. And not just that, but they couldn't sort of meet with and talk back to sort of seats of power. And so Trotter really became this folk hero amongst working class black people after that incident.
1: Carrie K. Greenwich is an American historian and academic. Her book, Black Radical, The Life and Times of William Monroe Trotter, is one of our 2021 Sperber Prize winners. It takes us through the life of William Monroe Trotter, a newspaper editor and early African-American civil rights activist fighting against accommodationist race policies. This is the Sperber Prize podcast, where I'll talk to winners and nominees of the annual award given by Fordham University in honor of author Anne M. Sperber and her remarkable biography of Edward R. Murrow. The award seeks to promote outstanding biographies and memoirs detailing the curious backgrounds to some of history's biggest stories in print and electronic journals. I'm your host, Kevin Denis. Joining me today is Carrie K. Greenwich, historian and author of the book we're looking at today, Black Radical. Carrie, how are you doing?
0: Good. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, thanks for coming on. All right. So your book, Black Radical, talks about the life and times of William Monroe Trotter, who came up in Boston as a wealthy newspaper editor and real estate businessman and eventually became one of the most prominent civil rights activists of his time but he's not necessarily a household name. What really led you to this story and wanting to write this book?
0: So well, it's a good question. Um, I say in the, one of the parts in the afterword of the book that I was really introduced to Trotter as a child. Uh, my grandparents were both civil rights activists in Boston although they lived outside of the city by the time I was born and my grandfather used to always say that many of the racial issues that occurred in Boston um, would not exist if William Monroe Trotter were still alive and so um, as a very little child I remember asking who that person was and my grandmother Um, basically telling me the name and giving me old copies of The Guardian and telling me that I should grow up and study him. And so (laughs) that's kind of he's kind of been rooted in in the back of my mind. And then when I went to graduate school, I studied him for my dissertation. But I was surprised at the lack of um, kind of secondary research on him as a person and the fact that the kind of the scholarship, great scholarship that had been done, hadn't kind of filtered into talking specifically about Trotter and his work. And so that's really what inspired me to want to delve more deeply into his life.
1: Well, first of all, the book is super detailed. Um, I can't imagine the research that went into it.
0: Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of research. Yeah.
1: yeah, how long were you working on it for?
0: So I started when I was doing my dissertation. So that's like 2010. And then I finished the book probably 2017. And then it was published in 2019. So about seven, eight years, um, kind of working and living with Trotter for a long time. So
1: Yeah, it's packed with details. Most of it is about obviously the battles he fought for civil rights at a time where most Black leaders were committed to more gradual reformist change. Um, Can you explain how his way of thinking was different from sort of the conventional ways at the time and why he was labeled as a radical?
0: Yeah, so uh, William Monroe Trotter, as I say in the book, was somebody who fundamentally believed that working class and poorer African-American people, what he called the masses of colored people, were the people to decide how they should be liberated the most, right? And so that those were the people who should be at the forefront of any topics of discussion about resistance, about rights, about economics. Um, And so for that reason, he was very much someone who was a radical populist in the most traditional sense in terms of really believing that um, working class people um, should have a say in uh, their government and how they sort of what their liberation would look like. And secondly, he was really somebody who believed that the 13th, 14th and 15th amendments of the Constitution that were passed um, after the Civil War were in themselves a way to transform ideas of citizenship and that because those amendments were being undermined by uh, local laws and basically um, um, usurped by uh, a rising tide of racial violence in the late 19th century. He believed um, that therefore those amendments were kind of the structural basis for a lot of Black uh, struggle and Black populist, Black um, radical thought. And so he really believed in two things, the power of the people was kind of, it sounds very hokey, but true, right? And then very much so that there were mechanisms in place within the federal government um, Um, that radically changed the way we look at citizenship and that those avenues should be used as well as sort of the the activism of the people themselves.
1: He founded this newspaper, The Guardian, did influence political opinions of Black Americans across the country. What was his biggest influence in like shaping his political opinions?
0: So the biggest one um, were his parents and his community. So his father, James Monroe Trotter, was a veteran of the American Civil War. Uh, James Trotter has himself a formerly enslaved man from Mississippi, who basically built himself up and joined the military and became a wealthy um, federal appointee in Boston after the Civil War. And so um, James Trotter was most influential in really teaching his son that, um, number one, Black people should vote in terms of what was most beneficial for their race and their communities, as opposed to being partisan to the Republican Party, which was the main party um, of of civil rights at the time. And he was very much um, influenced by his family's sort of history of radical abolition. So his mother grew up um, on the Underground Railroad, going back and forth between slaveholding Virginia and um, non-slaveholding Ohio. And she uh, sort of inculcated her children with this idea of armed self-resistance and Black community resistance. So it was really his community, um, his parents. And then when he went to Harvard, him sort of coming to the realization that, that not all people had been raised kind of in this very um, politically conscious, politically activist family.
1: Mm-hmm. So it was really just the environment he was raised in. Yes. Even though he was relatively wealthy, right?
0: hmm Yep. So his, his background was by the time he was born, his father was a federal appointee in the uh, Cleveland administration. So he served as recorder of deeds in Washington, D.C., which basically meant that James Sr., um, would negotiate the sale of property, and for every property he sold, he got 10%. And so this was during a real estate boom in D.C., so if we can imagine how much money he was making. Um, and he left, uh, he didn't leave that money initially to Monroe when he died. He left it to him after he ended up going to Harvard. But but Jane, but William Monroe Trotter grew up in a pretty um, upper-middle-class neighborhood, in Hyde Park, which is now part of the city of Boston, but back then was a a sort of country suburb um, and grew up with a lot of advantages, um, but then kind of very much grew up realizing that you had to use those advantages to uplift and to ensure the rights of the most vulnerable.
1: And that sort of led to his creation of The Guardian, right? His background and his education, his resources, but then that drive to lift up the people around him. Um, what kind of audience was he gathering when he started putting out The Guardian?
0: So he was really writing for and to the Black press. So the Black press has a, had a long history by that point. Nearly every Black community had some form of Black newspaper that was published principally because the majority white press was so um, racially hostile and um, um, dishonest about what they were reporting about Black communities. And so um, Trotter um, really was writing within that tradition of the Black press. Um, He was very much concerned with using the newspaper, as he said, to hold a mirror up to nature. And basically what that means is sort of, he was it's a Shakespeare quote, he really believed that the press was there to expose injustices in the world, and then use the press um, to galvanize and to mobilize people to fight the injustices around them. And so for that, he then was very much local, but also linking the local to this global, African diasporic uh, fight for justice.
1: It seemed like through the first half of the book, one of his main focuses was on suffrage and voting for the race rather than for the party. Um, And he gained a reputation over time as someone who wasn't really afraid to, you know, stand up to traditional authority and say, this needs to happen. How did sort of his emphasis on black people voting for the black race influenced politics at the time and some of the elections and uh, the parties?
0: Good question. So Trotter um, basically argued that particularly in the north at the time where black people could still vote. So this is a time where black people were being disenfranchised across the south and couldn't vote. He argued that there were pockets in the north, mostly in Massachusetts, but also in Ohio and New York, in parts of Pennsylvania, um, across New England, in California, where Black people were basically swing voters, and this is at a time when historically uh, elections were very, very close, even closer than we think of them being now. Um, so you would have, you know, a candidate that won by less than 1,500 um, popular vote. Um, you had presidential candidates that won, you know, not in a landslide at all. You had to really take into account the popular vote. So his point was that. Black people in the places they could vote needed to vote um, based on the candidate that was going to meet most of the needs of the Black people. So if that was not the Republican Party, they shouldn't vote for Republican if it wasn't the Democrat, they shouldn't vote for the Democrat. Um, They should vote sort of based on what that person's record was in terms of rights. And so he really believed that Black people had more voting power in these localities than kind of the national landscape would, would have them think. And actually he had a huge effect on... Uh, two things. Number one was mobilizing Black independence in uh, 1908 to vote for um, and to steer for William Howard Taft. And he was big on getting a a handful, but enough to push it over in favor of Woodrow Wilson in 1912. Um, And so I argue in the book that he's basically responsible for changing the way that Black people looked at the uh, political parties, right? Um, And looked at them not as the Republican party is the party that um, is going to deliver us from uh, the racist Democrats, that it was going to be the candidate and the candidate's history of reaction to black causes that would um, eventually um, lead to legislative change.
1: As well, um, he gained a reputation as someone who, you know, wanted things done his way. not always very collaborative.
0: No, not at all, yep. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, how was his relationship with other civil rights leaders at the time? I know he didn't get along with Booker T. Washington very well, it seemed.
0: Yes, yes. So he was, I always I always say when I give book talks that probably Trotter was not a very pleasant person to be around. Um, <laughs> probably like you wouldn't wanna, he wouldn't be the first person if you're going to get a beer that you wanna get a beer with. But he probably is somebody who like, if you're fighting a cause, he's the person you'd want to be there because he was sincere and he's he um, was very, very good at organizing and very, very good at calling attention and, and mobilizing. Um, so he didn't get along with Booker T. Washington principally because he believed that Washington was being disingenuous and that Washington himself was kind of profiting off of um, the ways in which he was um, selling out his people, as Trotter would say it, um, for, um, fame and for uh, financial backing of Tuskegee Institute. He also didn't really get along. He, he and Du Bois were long-term kind of um, friends, foes and friends again. They both were friends in, in Harvard. Du Bois originally courted the woman that Trotter eventually married (laughs) um, and they had known each other since they were in college. Um, And so they had sort of this tumultuous relationship, but then eventually uh, Trotter ended up uh, turning away from Du Bois as well. So he had all these conflicts with people he was known for being very, very difficult to work with. But the interesting thing about him is that like when he died in 1934, um, all of the tributes that poured in from Black people who had often been at odds with him basically saying that although he was very difficult to work with, he was this phenomenally good political actor and um, sincere in sort of what he believed. He wasn't sort of, there was nothing sort of fake or <laughs> or um, insincere about him, even if he his personality could rub people the wrong way.
1: Yeah, I know you mentioned a few times in the book that uh, Du Bois refers to him as a good race man because, you know, he cares about the cause. But his confrontations did eventually lead to, in the Woodrow Wilson election, he wasn't supporting Republican candidates anymore because... Of their relationships with Booker T. Washington and how they felt they were treating Black Americans, that obviously didn't go to plan, uh, the Woodrow Wilson election. Can you talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah, so Trotter was part of, like for the first 10 years of the 20th century, trying to mobilize Black people to be independence, political independence. And this came at the time when you had Theodore Roosevelt was elected, became president in 1901, then was elected on his own in 1904, and then ran again in 1908. And Um, was seen as and touted as somebody who was friendly to um, civil rights. Trotter and many of his allies pointed out that Theodore Roosevelt actually allowed disenfranchisement and lynching across the South as a way to lure white voters in the South to the Republican Party. And so he spent sort of the first eight years of the 20th century, really galvanizing Black people to reject this idea that they had to vote Republican. And then Woodrow Wilson comes along. And at the time, Woodrow Wilson was known as the president of Princeton first, and then also known as somebody who was, um, if not friendly to Black people, at least open to meeting with them. So there's a famous meeting that Trotter had before Wilson became president, in which Wilson actually met with Black um, voters at his house in New Jersey. And that was at a time when no other political candidate had done that yet um, in the 20th century. And so Trotter urges uh, black people for the first time to vote for uh, Woodrow Wilson. Of course, that's a disastrous decision. <laughs> <laughs> um, Woodrow Wilson went on to uh, segregate the federal government and to um, um, implement sort of all of these segregationist policies within, um, within the federal bureaucracy that were devastating to black people.
1: Trotter ended up going to the White House to visit Woodrow Wilson and uh, led to this sort of confrontation or an argument about how he felt like he was lied to, basically. Yes. And then what did that do for his sort of public status?
0: So he confronted Woodrow Wilson um, twice, and both of those times were really talking, confronting Wilson about the fact that he had promised um, when he met with Black voters. That he was going to be sort of as he as Woodrow Wilson put it, a Moses to your people, right? And that he was going to deal with civil rights issues. And when he doesn't do that, Trotter led a delegation to meet with Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson, of course, um, gets highly racially insulted and sort of says that Trotter cannot come back to the White House. Um, and even though. That incident didn't specifically lead, you know, Woodrow Wilson to change his mind on racial matters. It did really influence and galvanize and um, inspire black people across the country who had been told for so long that they didn't have any place in politics. And not just that, but they couldn't sort of meet with, And talk back to sort of seats of power. And so, Trotter really became this folk hero amongst working class um, Black people after that incident. You know, people started selling and reading uh, reading The Guardian. That really became a way that Black people began to reconceptualize their relationship to the presidency, right? The fact that you were a citizen and you had the right to um, protest, um, which was something that at the time um, most Black people were told they did not have the right to do. So, it really uh, changed the way many, many Black communities looked at their relationship to. to politics and to the White House in particular.
1: And then after the Woodrow Wilson confrontation, he obviously gains a little bit more popularity. And then he founded the Liberty League, which sort of was going on at the same time as the NAACP, And they were kind of butting heads over, you know, his radical demands and their more casual
0: Yeah, I think I think you would say more moderate. So Trotter's big issue with um, NAACP was that it was a mostly white-led organization controlled by mostly white liberals with a lot of money, and Trotter's uh, uh, problem was that they. Completely ignored that there were Black people who had been involved in the struggle who could have led the organization, Ida B. Wells being one, you know, famous anti lynching activist, um, who wasn't at first even invited to any of the initial meetings of the NAACP. Um, he also really opposed to the fact that the NAACP initially was concerned with legislative action as opposed to mobilizing Black people to protest. So the NAACP, when it began, really was designed to um, enforce or force the federal government to enforce the 14th, 13th, and 15th amendments. And Trotter agreed with that, but he also agreed you had to pair that with um, grassroots organizing, average people on the street, you know, having boycotts and sit-ins and all those types of things. And the NAACP didn't believe in those things. And so Trotter really, um, with his Liberty League, Believed that it had to mobilize people, sort of in their communities. The communities had to use the league to fight various causes um, that that community thought was was most urgent, and that they should, should they should ally themselves with black groups and protest groups across the African diaspora. So not just in the United States, but eventually, you know, in the Caribbean and 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 um um outside of kind of the local.
1: And then, how did? the Guardian and the Black press at the time play into his mobilization?
0: So the the Black press, specifically the Guardian, Trotter recognized that, you know, this is before television, it's even before radio or anything. The most, the ways that people were in contact with each other just in the community was through the newspaper. And the Black newspaper in, pers- in particular was a way for... Black people who were not covered, and if they were covered, were covered um, and racialized in the mainstream white press to actually get information um, about what was happening. And not only that, but then write to the newspaper and have what they wrote appear in the newspaper as a conversation across um, cities and across regions, and really across, you know, the uh, between, you know, Boston and say Barbados and Jamaica, because it was published in those places as well. So he really believed and used the press. Um, As a community builder, as a way that the press came out every Saturday, the press would then um, talk about instances of racial mobilization um, and outrage and really organize people through the press to protest. So one of his first cases was in Boston, the Monroe Rogers case, where he used a newspaper to gather Black people from across New England in Boston to protest against um, the detainment of a black man who was being um, wrongfully held in Massachusetts and accused of murdering a white man in um, North Carolina. And so that, because so many people, black people read this in communities, reading that they could read it, they could then know where the next meeting was, and every week they could be um, mobilized around their community. So it's really using the newspaper as a form of mobilization, which is it's hard for us to think of now because we have like you know <laughs> easy easy contact with people. But you know there's, there's stories of people waiting for the Guardian to come out because um, they wanted to see where the next protest meeting was, and then once they figured that out, then they would then write to the Guardian and talk about you know the new protest meeting coming out. So it was really um, a reciprocal way of using. Uh, the press to uh, mobilize massive amounts of people mm-hmm.
1: it's not really a traditional use of the press as we know it today but uh,
0: yeah exactly <laughs>
1: um, but the newspaper it was a smaller operation obviously he was the editor mm-hmm. I understand it but it seems like his wife really did a lot of the operations of it <laughs> yes um, can you talk about her role in it
0: Yeah, so Dini Pindell Trotter was his wife. When they started The Guardian in 1901, she kind of went into the marriage with this very wealthy Harvard graduate, and then by the time she died in 1918, um, most of their money was gone, and that had mostly to do with the dynamics of newspaper publishing to begin with, which is not um, a pretty lucrative (laughs) career. and particularly if you're not accepting ad, ad payments by um, people outside of the, the newspaper. And so he really decided to use the newspaper, uh, or she decided to use the newspaper as a way to um, prepare for um, the fact that they weren't going to be able to make money off of this forever. Uh, Trotter left his job as a real estate broker around 1906. And that meant that the Guardian was their sole source of like weekly income. And so Dini Trotter really was the one who kept the magazine running. She made sure that the copy went out. She made sure that, you know, it was it was printed every Friday evening. So she made sure that it went to the presses. Um, she made sure that people were paying um, for their subscriptions. So Trotter, because he was such an activist, was would, you know, Give the, give the Guardian to people just so they would use it. And she was saying, no, this has to make money as well. So she was definitely managing a lot of that money. And then when she died in 1918, you know, he really had to rely on his sister who helped a lot, but also various women in the community who would help run the newspaper.
1: Yeah. And you mentioned that towards the end of, well, towards the end of her life and then the end of his life, um, obviously their wealth declined a lot. Um, they had to move around a lot. It resulted in sort of his loss of clout in the community can you talk about just how he was regarded in the community later in his life
0: well he was he was um definitely somebody who was his causes and his organizations were respected long after kind of he began to Decline in the way he was seen by the community. And part of that had to do with that he was older. So he was born in 1872. Uh, by the time the 1920s come, he's in his 50s. There's a whole new crop of younger Black radicals who arose in the 1920s who were really very much involved in um, sort of um, shinier, better run newspapers than The Guardian. Um, and so he definitely was, um, ran a favor with them, but he was also very popular just his activism was very popular amongst younger radical writers. So people like uh, Marcus Garvey and Hubert Harrison and Cyril Briggs. Um, But just as a person himself, he was seen by many kind of just day to day as being um, older, as being kind of provincial, um, and of as being the Guardian not being the newspaper that it had been before. And that had many reasons to do with it, one of which is that he refused to accept money from um, certain advertisers in order to keep the newspaper running. Um, so they had to be advertisers that were not um, offensive to racial sensibilities. They had to be advertisers who were involved in um, some way in terms of civil rights and uplifting the community. So he lost out on a lot of revenue for the newspaper and then plus his sort of his his general personality was sort of um something that was um sort of came to the fore during the um the last decade of his life
1: oh I forget the exact term you used for this but you said towards the end he was still a prominent you know leader and thinker but he didn't have the following anymore and he was a little bit lost because of that and it was was very stressful for him
0: yeah but by particularly by the late 1920s um he was his ideas were definitely still popular, but he himself his, his ability to gather those large crowds had really you know declined uh, again because his competition were sort of younger people who were up on the new things. I kind of I kind of compare it to like if you had an older civil rights activist today who didn't know how to use Twitter, right? <laughs> um, they could be very 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 um, inspirational and um, um, they could be speaking the truth, but if they don't know how to use Twitter or engage in that way, they're not going to get kind of the same type of, of, of respect just across the board. And that's kind of Trotter. He didn't really understand that the newspaper industry had changed that, you know, the kind of field and landscape had changed. Um, and so that he definitely wasn't getting just walking through the streets of Boston, getting the same type of respect that he was getting before, even though people still read the guardian, um, his kind of just status and his, his ability to attract the amount of people he attracted before uh, definitely declined. And then that sort of ended up having, I argue in the book, this psychological effect, um, particularly as his own fortunes began to collapse and he's, you know, sleeping in people's um, living rooms and he's not, you know, the same person he was, you know, 15 years before.
1: Yeah. Seems like he was really, truly selfless though, because all of his policies revolved more around the race than anything to do with self-promotion. What would you say his sort of lasting legacy on the civil rights movement was after his passing.
0: The biggest legacy it was his ability to talk to communities that communities that are disenfranchised and marginalized ultimately have the principal say and how they will be liberated. Right. And even today, I think that's a pretty controversial way of thinking. We often think that communities have to be told kind of what they need as opposed to the community themselves having a sense of what they need. And so he was very much, um, that was his, his biggest legacy. I don't think that there would have been similar discussions about like grassroots politics and mobilizing people if you hadn't have had Trotter talking about those things earlier and giving people kind of a roadmap on how to do that, you know, that you use the press and you talk to people and you, you mobilize and you use, you know, uh, the language that you use to talk to people and then that you listen to them so when they write write letters to the guardian you publish those in your newspaper and then talk back to them he was very sort of forward thinking in that idea that this was this was reciprocal that people couldn't be talked at they had to be sort of mobilized and um and and brought to um the the political power that he ultimately believed that people had
1: mm-hmm. anything else to add about his life that you think i left out
0: no i don't think so i think he's you know he's uh I'm glad that people are are reading about him. I think he's sort of one of those people that is endlessly fascinating, um, just in terms of the, his long career in um, in protest. And thinking about, you know, what does that mean? Is in your, your right somebody being that selfless, where they like every week he's writing the newspaper, every year he's involved in some type of protest, and how exhausting that must have you know been, just in terms of spending you know 30 years or something weekly engaged in all of these multiple issues of protest so um yeah
1: yeah well it was a good read because obviously he's not a household name but so much of what he did you can see how it laid foundations for the rest of the movement you know yes all right carrie thank you so much for joining us Tune into the Sperber Prize podcast next time for my conversation with Mr. Alan Sperber, the brother of Ann Sperber, who the Sperber Prize is named after, about his sister's book and sort of the legacy surrounding the whole award. Special thanks to this episode's guest, Carrie Greenwich, to Fordham University and to the Sperber Prize Committee for making this show possible. For more information about the Sperber Prize, as always, you can visit our website at SperberPrize.com. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to you soon.